This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. We're speaking this week about post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, otherwise known as long COVID, which the CDC explains as long-term symptoms that might be experienced weeks to months after a primary infection with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. These symptoms are extensive with over 200 symptoms reported ranging from general fatigue and weakness to sensorimotor symptoms, neurologic, digestive symptoms, and cardiovascular symptoms. Our guest, Dr. Amy Pearl, has been looking at post-viral syndromes in her research for many years, especially in her work with myalgic encephalitis chronic fatigue syndrome. She is a microbiologist with an expertise in molecular mechanisms by which pathogens modulate human gene expression, metabolism, and autoimmunity. You can follow her on Twitter at microbeminded2. She recently used her knowledge and experience to author a highly cited research paper with her co-researcher, Dr. Michael Van Elzacker. This paper is called Long COVID or Post-Acute Sequelae of COVID-19, an overview of biological factors that may contribute to persistent symptoms. This paper is standing as a framework for clinicians and researchers to think through the long COVID puzzle and start treating it. In this episode, we walk through the paper and many other topics related to the biological factors of long COVID and discuss how this research will give us a roadmap to help patients start feeling better. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Prohl, welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. It's great to have you back with us again. Adam, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so... And we last caught up, it was, I think, in April of 2021, um, and we were talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, and we were going into some of the underpinnings of of that disorder. And at the time we spoke, um, there was a lot coming out on uh, long COVID, and we hinted to that a little bit in our discussion, but I would just love to hear what you've been up to since then, I think. Now I'm referencing things as to what variant was out at that time. So I think that was Delta time. Yeah, that sounds about right with Delta. I'm trying to think where I was exactly around that time too. Um, I think already then um, I was doing research coordination as the research team coordinator and microbiologist for Polybio Research Foundation, which I'm still doing and it's going really well. And what we're doing there is we are working with a lot of different research teams to set up collaborative projects to study MECFS um, still, but now also long COVID and also to the capacity that we can post-treatment Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease as well. Um, And in fact, to the extent possible, um, 
as many diagnoses as we can that we call infection-associated chronic disease, which are conditions initiated or exacerbated by infection, um, which that's the central trend that we're seeing in all these different uh, conditions where a patient gets infected with a pathogen. And in the case of of long COVID, it's obviously the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but then an ME-CFS patient might get infected with Epstein-Barr virus, and that may initiate their case. So while we know there are differences in what can occur in those patients, there are also a lot of overlapping similarities, and that's one of the topics and trends that we try to study and uh, try to tap into in our projects. Mm-hmm. I see. And around that time, I guess in June, you had a paper published that's really been quite phenomenal in getting the word out on having a framework of how to think through long COVID. Um, Can you just talk about just the paper and how, you know, how that uh, came about and, and what the response has been since you, since that was published? Sure. Yeah, that was a paper that I wrote with my colleague, Mike Van Elziger, and he's a neuroscientist at Harvard. And we work closely together because one of the things that's brought us together as collaborators is I'm a microbiologist, so I follow a lot of the research and study pathogen activity and chronic disease, but a lot of where that happens in diagnoses like long COVID or ME-CFS is that the infections can impact the central nervous system. So being a neuroscientist, he has a really amazing, honestly, encyclopedic knowledge of brain circuitry and how the brain functions, and also just a really good understanding of how environmental factors can affect those circuits. So when we combine our shared thinking, we can connect um, trends that correlate infection to the central nervous system. And beyond that, as I think you know, I have also a background in microbiome research. And so we really wanted to bring in the collective activity of organisms in the human body into what we wrote about long COVID as well. So what happened is that we had already been studying ME-CFS, and that's a condition in which patients, the majority of patients, sustain a viral infection and, and don't recover. And so because of that, that for years, we'd already been studying these core trends and reading about core trends in that diagnosis and also paying attention to, for example, other uh, conditions linked to pathogens that lead to chronic infectious symptoms, for example, Ebola virus, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a whole, there's a whole really cool understanding that post Ebola syndrome, um, well, it's, that's, that part's not cool. You know, people who get Ebola, a subset of patients develop really debilitating chronic symptoms. But that research community has really moved on that finding to begin to better understand what's happening in those patients. And what happened there is they began to collect samples from patients that went beyond just the blood or just beyond, you know, conventional sort of testing. And they actually got breast milk samples, semen samples, samples from eye tissue, um, what are called anatomical sanctuaries. And they were able to still find RNA from the virus in those samples. So eventually it became known that Ebola, post-Ebola syndrome seems to be a chronic infectious disease in which the virus actually persists in these low levels in these anatomical sanctuaries where it can still drive problems. And so when, when long COVID was starting to, unfortunately, become more of a thing and more patients were reporting chronic symptoms after the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we got a little frustrated, I'll, I'll be honest, because the narrative was that these, this phenomenon 
the large narrative was that the phenomenon was a mystery, that we had no idea what was happening, that we weren't sure what we could do or what we could study. And meanwhile, Mike and I were just sitting on all this post-Ebola virus literature and all these other things and all the trends we'd seen in MECFS. So we decided that we should write a review where we pulled together and reviewed that literature and identified core trends that already had begun to be important in those diagnoses and begin to bring them directly into what we thought was happening with long COVID and get that out in a paper that we felt people could use at least as a guide to begin to study clear, concrete topics in long COVID. And that actually has happened. We were really glad that the paper was really well received and that a lot of groups have read it and in fact told us that it actually has formed a basis of a lot of uh, the research programs that people are starting to um, put up, you know, to, to do at a couple different places where um, at least just reading the paper, they had some more concrete ideas of what they should study and also how some of the trends that they should study could be interconnected. Congratulations on the paper again. And, you know, I just noticed there was already 55 citations on Google Scholar of your paper. And um, it's also great to see how you collaborated um, with Dr. Van Elzacker, and I could see some of his influence as well in the paper with discussions related to the vagus nerve and the uh, central nervous system and some of the nervous system components. Yes, exactly. There's a section in the paper that talks about vagus nerve to brainstem signaling, with the vagus nerve being a major nerve that innervates every major trunk organ of the human body. And the brainstem being a region in the back of the brain that controls core biological functions and has these overlapping nerve bodies that control autonomic function, what's called the sickness behavior response, which is actually the signaling that allows you to recognize that you're sick. So for example, let's say you got food poisoning. How does your body tell you that you feel ill? Actually, the vagus nerve senses in the gut that there's inflammation from the food poisoning. It conveys that signal to the brainstem, which turns on, in simple terms, this response to say, ooh, you feel icky, you feel sick, you feel malaise. And that's a response that that's sort of a, you know, uh, you know, brain-mediated response to what's going on in the body, right? And the brainstem also has other nerve bodies that control nausea, pain. And so there's this overlapping area in the brainstem where that signaling becomes dysregulated. It can lead to a lot of the symptoms that we see in patients with long COVID and also MECFS. So for a while now, we've been really interested in that circuitry, the vagus nerve to brainstem. And so Mike describes that, I think, beautifully in the paper. And there's an image of those overlapping nerve bodies that I'm talking about. But what we did in the paper is we took the other factors that we mentioned. For example, the possibility that the SARS-CoV-2 virus doesn't fully clear from people or that there may be reactivation of other viruses in some long COVID patients like Epstein-Barr virus or even just imbalance of patients' microbiome communities, the organisms in their guts or mouths. And we took those factors and we tried to explain how they and the inflammation associated with those issues could actually activate the vagus nerve to brainstem signaling in a way that could result in those sets of symptoms. So we try in the paper to connect the different topics um, in the paper and to that common um, circuitry. 
So yeah, Mike is, was instrumental in that though. He, without his expertise on that front, I wouldn't have had, uh, been able to tie the environment to it as much as we did. <laughs> yeah. It, it really was helpful to have that in there. And I guess I want to back up and frame the conversation a little bit because you know, I can imagine landing on this conversation, someone who's struggling with long COVID or post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 and, you know, just hearing all the different dimensions we're going to be talking about. And from a research perspective, you're really helping the clinicians answer the framework of how to bring treatments to people dealing with um, the long COVID symptoms. I would just love for you to comment, like before we kind of dive in to this further about, you know, how would, how would you recommend digesting this information? You know, when you're, you know, listening to it, cause it's, it's when I was going through the paper, I was just like, wow, there is just so much to think about here and it feels a little overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah, no, I understand. The way that I would look at it is that a lot of patients are developing a wide range of chronic symptoms after COVID and up to over 200 different symptoms have been reported. So there's people struggling with all kinds of different symptoms. Um, And so what that at least leads us to start with is that we don't think that every patient who gets a long COVID diagnosis has the exact same thing going on. We think that there may be different things that may be happening in different patients, but that those different factors can be interconnected and that they're not mutually exclusive. So in the paper, we do try to break up those factors. And I guess what I could do is just walk you through the different main biological factors that we delineate in the paper that we think can contribute to long COVID. And actually, some of them, since the time that we wrote the paper, have actually been verified to contribute to long COVID, which is interesting, and I can touch on that. So um, the first is the most straightforward possibility, which is that patients get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they get you know acute covid Uh, illness, and then they may not fully clear the virus. In other words, a little bit of the virus remains in what we call a viral reservoir. So, and that reservoir is usually in tissue. So a lot of times, even in acute disease, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is not often found in the blood. So it's not like a simple blood test is going to show you that. What can happen is that perhaps in the gut, in the intestinal tissue, or perhaps in the lungs and tissue, a little bit of the virus sticks around. And it sticks around and it can continue to perhaps express the spike protein or dysregulate the immune system as part of that ongoing infection. And so that topic of viral reservoir is one of the ones that we are actually most um, uh, interested in currently studying. So what we're doing to study that is we're actually just collecting tissue samples from patients with long COVID and trying to look for the virus in them, and also a number of other immune or other factors that may um, correlate with possible persistence of the virus. Now, the another scenario for long COVID development that, again, doesn't have to be mutually exclusive with viral reservoir is that during acute COVID, the immune system becomes dysregulated. And we know that it does. There can be depletion of interferon signaling, for example. And interferons are important signaling molecules that control most forms of viral infection. And the SARS-CoV-2 virus knocks down the interferon signaling in a way 
that makes the immune system generally lose control of its capacity to control any, well, most viruses that the patient might already have. And those viruses can include the herpes viruses. So for example, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus. And most people, the majority of people have at least one herpes virus. And what happens is under conditions of health, those viruses are in a dormant or latent state. So the immune system is keeping their activity in check. It's keeping them down. But let's say you get COVID and the immune system becomes dysregulated, that interferon signaling becomes dysregulated. Now the immune system might no longer be able to regulate the Epstein-Barr virus and the virus can reactivate and drive new symptoms in and of itself. So you could have what we're calling viral reactivation there of other pathogens. And it doesn't just have to be viruses that could reactivate in patients with long COVID. It could be that, you know, a large number of people, for example, harbor the parasite toxoplasma, a really high number of people. Um, That is a parasite that can persist in the central nervous system and drive a range of neuropsychiatric or other symptoms. Some people have been bitten by a tick and they do not realize that they may have Borrelia or Bartonella or some of the tick-borne pathogens. Those are other organisms that can sort of Latent isn't the perfect term, but they may not have gained much of a foothold in the patient, but they may be there. And then when they get COVID and the immune system goes down, those infections can surface and cause more problems if they were not doing that before, right? So that reactivation of other pathogens is definitely a trend that is uh, possible. And actually, there was a recent study that did track patients um, from who had COVID through the development of some patients who developed long COVID. And they identified about four core biological factors that seemed to predispose to development of long COVID. And one was Epstein-Barr virus viremia, or in other words, more Epstein-Barr virus activity. So, and there's a couple other papers that have shown clear signs of Epstein-Barr virus reactivation in patients with long COVID. So that's, it's not really just a, idea anymore. It's actually something that's been demonstrated to be happening, right? Then, sure. Yeah. yeah and I, yeah, I'd like to just comment on that, sure. you know, both from a patient's perspective and also from a clinician's perspective. And I think, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense that if it seems like the, the COVID just kind of turned into just this extended illness, maybe the acute phase is over and then it just seems like you just have felt sick ever since you had COVID and uh, felt unwell and maybe had some swollen lymph glands and maybe just low-grade malaise and various other kind of viral-like symptoms to be, you know, thinking about past history of other like infections or past history of other exposures and you know that absolutely that this is just expressed an immune problem that was dormant yes that's one of the things i think generally is one of the things that that is probably happening with some long covid cases is that a person may have you know exactly some underlying infections that haven't yet gotten to the point where they're driving concrete symptoms or they've been exposed to mold, or they've had some issues with environmental toxins, or you name it, the other factors that can feed into a range of chronic diseases. 
And then when they get COVID, it's sort of that breaking point that finally allows those other factors to surface and really begin to drive disease in a more concrete fashion. And that really doesn't have to be mutually exclusive with the possible persistence of SARS-CoV-2 itself. I honestly think that there's the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 sticks around as a little bit of a reservoir and Epstein-Barr virus reactivates in some patients or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there may be, again, that's where I come into the multiple factors can be happening in any given patient. Um, so, you know, depending on that though, as a clinician, that really does give you the ability to say to the extent that it's possible for a patient, can we test you? And of course the testing is not perfect, but can we try to get an understanding if you have some antibody, um, if you have antibodies that's, that signal that you have been infected with EBV or CMV or definitely Borrelia, Bartonella, you know, to the extent possible, try to get tested. And the testing isn't perfect for those pathogens. But if there's a chance that that's playing into someone's case, those are things that can be at least somewhat addressed or treated. So that's a start. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the, the number of coronaviruses that there are out there. Why is it this one's behaving like this? Is it the ability of this virus to really penetrate the tissue that is just in, in, and really disrupt the immune system that's just so much stronger than things we've seen in recent times? See, the interesting thing is I'm not sure if this virus is that different in its capacity to cause a chronic you know, be the instigation of a chronic syndrome. I actually just think it's happening to way more people. And so it's being noticed and recognized and now studied more. But the thing is, we know that most, if not all major pathogens are associated with a chronic syndrome in which a subset of patients develop chronic symptoms. So patients infected with Zika, a subset develop chronic symptoms. Patients infected with dengue, a subset develop chronic symptoms. Patient, every single pathogen that's been, you know, looked at in that capacity. The SARS-1, the SARS-1 virus was associated with quite a, a, a substantial, uh, case reports of people who developed chronic symptoms. And in fact, for other coronaviruses, you know, the, t- the thing is, there isn't as much research as there should be on these viruses and their chronic, uh, possible chronic complications. But there's one really good study, for example, that found a previous coronavirus in its genetic material, and I think some of its proteins in multiple sclerosis lesions in brain tissue. So there actually is evidence that some of these other coronaviruses may be able or can persist or can stick around in some patients and drive chronic sequelae. It's just that that topic is not studied as robustly as it can be. And honestly, people like our teams that are that have done and supported some of the work on those other pathogens, you know, we're we're not glad that long COVID is happening, but we're glad that this trend of actually taking the chronic possibility of a viral infection more seriously seems to be happening because actually we need to do it for most pathogens. We need to really start to flesh this out. So I Mm -hmm. actually am not sure that's one of the things is that, you know, a lot of studies now come out saying SARS-CoV-2 can um, alter the metabolism of the cells it infects and SARS-CoV-2 can infect the brain. And it's great that that research is coming out, but actually 
we do see evidence of that with other pathogens. It just doesn't get as much exposure. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's really well said. I mean, the, the scale of this has just brought this so much into the forefront. And also, I mean, this is the first condition that has almost been like an open collaboration that I've seen um, in my lifetime throughout the world in such a rapid pace of people collaborating all over the world. Yes, exactly. I would love, you know, if I ran the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, I would take every virus, Epstein-Barr virus, dengue, Zika, and I would throw as much attention as SARS-CoV-2 is getting into the study of those pathogens and what they're capable of doing. So mm-hmm. it is cool to see that happening with SARS-CoV-2, though. We're, we're learning a lot about this one pathogen. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, going further down into these biological factors, I, um, you brought up um, a couple of viruses that um, have been showing predisposition to long COVID, you know, such as Epstein-Barr virus, and that's a you know virus we've talked about before together, and I'm certainly seeing that in you know my patient population of people who had long COVID um, that the Epstein Barr virus starts replicating again, and um, maybe we could just touch a little bit more deeper on that. Sure, I'm. It's actually really interesting that you're finding that. I'm not surprised. I think a lot of clinicians who are starting to actually check are finding that, and you know. Epstein-Barr virus is a really interesting virus because I don't know if you saw, there's recent research that actually connected Epstein-Barr virus directly to multiple sclerosis. So two big studies just came out. One was a big Harvard study that looked at, they they went back and they looked at records from many thousands of members of the military and they correlated, they finally had a large enough group of people that they were able to show that they, that the subjects that had Epstein-Barr virus, all of, almost all of them, um, who or people who had MS, almost all of them had been infected with Epstein-Barr virus. It was a really good study showing that association. And then a second study came out from a Stanford team almost just a week later. And that's one of my favorite studies ever. What they did is they showed in that study they were able to isolate B cells from the cerebral spinal fluid of patients with MS. And then they were able to isolate some antibodies or immunoglobulins from those B cells. And they were able to show that one of those antibodies, which normally, by the way, would be called an autoantibody, was actually an antibody that was firing on an Epstein-Barr virus protein called Mm. EBNA-1. And then that protein has a similar size and shape to a human glial cell protein in the brain that gets attacked in MS. And so what happens is an antibody tries to target the Epstein-Barr virus protein and it hits that human glial or immune cell that has a similar size and shape. And that's a cross-reactive. In other words, they showed a process by which the human immune cells in MS in the brain can become, you know, inflamed in a manner that can drive neuroinflammation and demyelination in the disease. But the reason that happens is because the immune system is trying to target Epstein-Barr virus, hmm. if you follow me. And that, that was really huge and very important to understand um, because that comes into the topic of autoimmunity in a condition 
that's also tied to viral activity because it's becoming more and more important. And the studies like that one that really make progress in understanding disease mechanisms are starting to not just study the virus in one lab and study in autoimmune type phenomenon in a separate lab. They're trying Mm -hmm. to connect them. And so I think that's going to be very, very important in long COVID as well, because autoantibodies are definitely being identified in long COVID. And what I mean by that is those are antibodies that target self. So they'll target a human protein or a human receptor and obviously cause damage when they do that. But the question is, why are those autoantibodies forming? Where do they come from? And it's very possible that the same phenomenon, which we call molecular mimicry, may be happening, where what's originally happening is the immune system is trying to fire on, you name it, any pathogen protein, another herpes virus protein, uh, you name it, a parasite protein, a bacterial protein. And then it has a similar size and shape to a human receptor, a human protein, a human structure. And that cross-reactivity is what leads to the firing on self. And that antibody will be called an autoantibody, but it actually had a connection to uh, an infectious agent. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you can follow me there, but it's yeah. really important to yeah. try to understand that trend. Yeah. So I, I think from from a clinician's perspective, like the two terms that we've talked about before, like um, neuroinflammation, and just barrier breach. Um, so we've talked about intestinal barrier breach, which can lead to autoimmunity. And then we're talking about is brain barrier, a blood brain barrier breach, you know, by, and certain people, you know, would have more of a predisposition to this. Um, you know, for example, diabetics and, um, people who are maybe, um, you know, on certain medications or have certain lifestyle behaviors where they're they're at risk for barrier um, inflammation and um, intestinal barrier issues and brain barrier issues. And so I'm wondering if, you know, sort of that, that kind of flags for um, patients who, you know, may be more at risk for this sequelae of, of um, long COVID. Yes. So that's another factor that we describe in the paper, which is that we're all, as you know, seated with trillions of interacting organisms in most body sites. Um, and that's the human microbiome. And obviously the gut has a high number of these organisms, these ecosystems of organisms, the mouth does, but actually a lot of human body sites are now understood to harbor ecosystems of organisms, the bladder, the liver, other uh, areas as well, the lungs, for example. So what happens is under conditions of health or balance, those communities persist in a state of balance. It's sort of like a forest or something. The animals are all, you know, there's an ecosystem, balanced ecosystem. But again, if you get COVID and the immune system becomes dysregulated, that can allow potentially those ecosystems of organisms to collectively change the way they act, change their gene expression, and move collectively towards a state where they become imbalanced or dysbiotic. And that can drive a large number of symptoms. And as that happens, usually there becomes a more pro-inflammatory environment where you're going to see 
more pathogenic, more virulence in the organisms in those ecosystems. And as more inflammation becomes associated with that, that can begin to wear down the barriers like the gut lining, the oral, you know, gingival lining that that usually keeps the organ those organisms in their products sort of contained, right? And so you can get leakage into the blood of all kinds of products, right? So bacterial products, bacteria, potentially bacteria themselves. And obviously, for example, you know, that could be compounded if the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself persists in a little reservoir itself, because there was a really interesting study which was looking at patients. It was a mass general team here led by Alesso Fasano, who's a really cool okay. uh, researcher. And he was looking at the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is a condition in children where children become infected with COVID. And then even sometimes when the initial infection is mild or even asymptomatic, a couple of weeks down the road, they all of a sudden have a huge inflammatory response that can even be, that can be deadly. So mm -hmm. he was trying to figure out what was going on there. And he looked in the gut um, and found the virus still. So he found that the virus had not fully cleared from the guts of children with this multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And what was happening is that the gut lining was getting worn down by the infection. And they actually measured that by measuring zonulin, which is a, a marker of intestinal permeability. And they yeah. could show that that was that was, uh, you know, uh, predisposing towards gut leakage. And then the spike protein of the virus that was still there in a little capacity in the gut was leaking into the blood. And that was catalyzing the immune system in genetically predisposed children to just oh, wow. flare up. Right. So wow. you can imagine. Ask, yeah. Yeah. That, that's just amazing. You know, he's, he's, uh, Dr. Fasano is, who discovered zonulin, right? So yes. that's his that's his thing. Do you know if they were checking it in the stool or the blood? They Zonula. were checking, to my knowledge, in the stool, but I'd have to double check. And mm -hmm. then they did give the some of the children a zonulin, you know, restoring drug. I'd have to look at that. Yeah, they, that's and the, it helped. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that they're developing that drug um it's supposed to you know be a potential treatment also for celiac in the future right so it's uh yeah. it's fascinating you no, know right it, it's interesting because like even just to kind of um backtrack back up a little bit with these symptoms of um barrier breach and you know the microbiome and the dysbiosis and leaky gut and just kind of that whole scenario that people who you know, may have had a predisposition for this already, like IBS or mm -hmm. Crohn's or colitis or other conditions, and then they got COVID on top of it. Or maybe even people who didn't even know, they they just never really pay attention to their gut. And all of a sudden, since COVID, they're having like brain fog and nausea and reflux and all these kind of like symptoms yeah. that they've never really dealt with and brain fog being just kind of like a constant kind of cloudiness and malaise and difficulty thinking and processing. Yep. That's no, the kind absolutely. of thing you're talking about, right? That is exactly what I'm talking about because imagine that exactly your gut, you know, the microbiome ecosystem in your gut isn't in great shape, you know, let's say, but it's, you're getting by, right. Then you get COVID. Then perhaps you SARS-CoV-2 gets into the gut. Maybe it takes a while to clear. It sticks around. 
and it starts to wear down the gut lining. Now all the other organisms go, wow, this is a great atmosphere for us to get involved too. You know, let's change and let's be, shift to be a little bit more pathogenic on our, on our own as well. Now their products are starting to leak through the gut lining too, you know, and you can just start to see there how that can, you know, sort of snowball where, you know, you may have some effects from SARS-CoV-2, but then the rest of the organisms coming in and all of a sudden, now you have someone who's pretty sick and has a lot of leakage of products that should, you know, can be really pro-inflammatory into the blood, you know, and that actually can, can exacerbate um, a finding that's really interesting in long COVID, which is that one team led by Dr. Risia Pretorius, who's a researcher in South Africa that we collaborate with, she's actually found what she's calling, what they're calling microclots in the blood of patients mm. with long COVID. In other words, the blood of these patients seems to have, at least in a test tube, has little clots that she can isolate. And um, the reason that those clots seem to form, at least one of the reasons, is because they're also associated with platelets, which are red blood cells that become hyperactivated. And that's part of the clotting process. And platelets have can sense all the reason, the way that platelets become hyperactivated is they sense a wide range of bacterial and viral products. So for example, the spike protein, if platelets sense the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, they will hyperactivate clotting, clotting, clotting. There's a huge process there that can, that can stimulate coagulation, but also platelets activate in response to bacterial products or LPS or other uh, signaling molecules that can leak into the blood when the microbiome just itself becomes imbalanced, right? Mm -hmm. So the clotting that's actually being more characterized in long COVID patient blood can be directly tied to or even catalyzed by, you know, microbiome imbalance and dysbiosis and leakage of products into the blood, right? Which Amazing. can then become yeah. its own problem too, where the blood becomes coagulated. And then if the blood is coagulated, it has trouble perfusing the body and it may not get into the smaller blood vessels or the capillaries. And then if that happens, the person may have trouble because blood carries oxygen with it. Oxygen may not reach as many tissues as it should in the body. And indeed, there are a couple teams that have shown that that long COVID patients seem to have problems with oxygen extraction from tissue or just oxygenation of tissue. So mm -hmm. all of these different, you know, there can be these flow on effects that can stem from um, leakage of uh, product into blood from microbiome or the virus itself, or, you know, even an Epstein-Barr virus protein can activate platelets. So, yeah. so that's where it comes down to almost figuring out a mix of factors in patients that may be you know, contributing to these symptoms um, with with a number of them being able to be augmented by leaky barriers. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, for for years, we've thought about these, you know, kind of chronic syndromes like that are connected to hypoxia and hypercoagulation. Yeah. And um, now that we're on the topic of platelets, like mast cells also can activate platelet. Um like uh, platelet hypercoagulability, right? Or uh, I, I thought there was a connection there. They're definitely involved in in the process. You know, that being said, mast cells are basic innate immune cells that basically get caught up in most inflammatory responses or reactions, right? They're sort of, picture you have an army 
um, mast cells would be, you know, back in the day, like the movie Braveheart or something like that. You know how they first have the archers that put their arrows out and just hope to hit anything. And then Mm -hmm. later you have, you know, your ranks of the cavalry in this and it becomes more specific. Well, mast cells are the archers. They're just anytime there's, you know, an infection or an issue or something or whatever, mast cells just come in and fire, right? So mast cells are actually part of many um, or most signaling processes that get caught up in inflammatory sequelae. So I do think that the activity of mast cells matters in these patients um, and in patients with, with most diagnoses. But that being said, when it comes to diagnoses like MCAS, I, I, I do think that patients will have activated mast cells. But at the same time, I think it's important in the MCAS community to begin to better look for environmental factors that the patient may have that can be activating the mast cells. Because for example, if you have an unaddressed infection, so for example, let's say you didn't fully clear the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that will continually lead to mast cells will be recruited and being like, why is the virus still here? Why is the virus Mm -hmm. still here? What's going on? What's going on, right? So if if you don't address, you know, if you don't address some of the underlying, same with microbiome imbalance, you know, the, the collective imbalance and the inflammation that results from microbiome dysbiosis, mast cells will continually be active to say, what's going on here? It's imbalanced. This is not good. There's, you know, there's activity of more pathogens. So all of that will keep mast cells active, right? So I do think that in MCAS, you know, patient, you will, patients will take the antihistamines to kind of control mast cell activity, which I think can help with symptoms. But I also encourage people, and I'm not a doctor, to think though, to make sure that you also address, to the extent that's possible, the microbiome dysbiosis, the possibly mm-hmm. reactivated Epstein-Barr, because those are all issues that will keep mast cells perpetually active, right? So, right. It, it, they, yeah. So in other words, you know, Mast cells will always be an issue as long as there are any, any of those factors are happening. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, and I've validated this with other people I know who care for the mast cell community is that mast cell patients have been sort of addressing these underlying drivers for a long, long time. And they've actually, you know, a lot of them have actually prepared their body to handle um, this virus. Um, before it was, before they were confronted with it, they were already, yeah. they were already doing the things that you would do to prevent long COVID. And so, yeah. you know, we've kind of joked with a lot of my patients is that like COVID just met the wrong person, you know, when it, <laughs> when it, when it came across you, because you were already doing things that were going to protect from the sequelae. And um, I've, I've validated that with a lot of people in the mass cell community that, um, they because they were already thinking in this direction, they they've been able to kind of tolerate this virus a little better. That's good to hear. Yeah. I mean, I do I think, and I'm not a doctor, I do think that it's important to not overdo the sort of controlling of mast cells because mast cells also perform vital functions, right? Exactly. So they also are the cell that's going to help the immune system recognize new forms of infection or new issues. So you don't want to necessarily knock out all their signaling. But I think exactly if you are really strategically controlling 
their activity and mitigating, you know, over production of mass cell mediators, that that is a, a, a smart strategy to, you know, to keep things to keep things yeah, a little bit more in check when when you're infected. Exactly. That's the same yeah. principle. I think that's a really good point. And we, I've spoken about that concept on another podcast with uh, Dr. Novak and, you know, how we have this concept of like, well, we should just shut these, these uh, cells down or shut inflammation down and, um, you know, reduce all oxidative stress, but a little bit is good and needed. Yeah. We have to really look at the sweet spot between, too much or too little. If you go too little, then um, the immune system misses some of its first response. Absolutely. See, that's the thing is, I think it's a matter of exactly figuring out that sweet spot, which may even differ with from patient to patient, because exactly reactive oxygen species, which are produced by mitochondria, are a huge and important part of mitochondrial defense, right? So mitochondria themselves can become infected. And in fact, I wrote a paper last year, again, with Mike Van Elziger, the same person I wrote the long COVID paper with. And that paper just walks through the mechanisms by which a broad range of pathogens directly infect mitochondria, hijack their activity in a matter that totally leads to changes in ATP production and all kinds of, of changes in metabolism that can be correlated with chronic disease. And the reactive oxygen species produced by mitochondria are what mitochondria used to fight back against that hijacking, right? Mm. So you don't, in my opinion, from a scientific perspective, you wouldn't want to eliminate that, but you do. On the other flip side of it, though, if you have a lot of infected cells and mitochondria getting hijacked, a lot of reactive oxygen species are produced. And then that can kind of cascade, right? Where the reactive oxygen species signal to the next cell and go, and then that cell recognizes it and becomes more active. And so exactly, there's a mix of saying, we don't, we still want reaction, reactive oxygen species here to be able to combat the pathogens, but we don't want the signaling to get out of control. So that mix of trying to figure out where the balance is, I think is, is key. Right, exactly. Now you mentioned a topic in uh, your paper that is I've heard before, but I really don't understand well. Um, it's called functional redundancy, and uh, yeah. maybe you've talked about that already. But I just maybe you could clarify for me what that is and shed some light on how that's playing a role in in long COVID. Yeah. So what I mean by functional redundancy is that, and I'm just going to come at this from the perspective of, of understanding what pathogens can do to drive chronic disease processes is that path, a lot of pathogens have developed somewhat similar ways to drive disease. So for example, a good one would just be the way they can hijack mitochondria. So mm -hmm. they have similar strategies by which they can infect a cell and sort of change the way that mitochondria functions. And so they have, you know, it comes down to the, so a good example. And, and then what happens is that if you have sort of two pathogens, let's say you have, you're still struggling with a little bit of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that hasn't cleared and Epstein-Barr virus reactivated. And both of those pathogens are doing something similar to drive disease, then that can really compound that problem, right? So for example, we know with the clotting in the blood of long COVID patients that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein seems very, it can catalyze clotting very easily. But 
proteins created by Epstein-Barr virus can also activate platelets in a manner that can drive clotting. So if you have both issues, you have that what I'm going to call redundancy in the mechanisms by which those viruses can drive a similar process, right? Mm -hmm. So another example would be that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can infect the blood vessels, the vasculature directly. So that can compromise the integrity of the circulatory system. But let's say you also have Bartonella, a tick-borne pathogen. Well, Bartonella also directly infects the blood vessels and vasculature. So if you had a problem with SARS-CoV-2 infection of the blood vessels, and then you also had Bartonella, there's a redundancy in the way that they can act, similarity in what they do that could make you a patient who's going to have more blood vessel symptoms because of that. Mm -hmm. And that's basically all I mean by that is similar, you know, redundant things that different pathogens do that can sort of make one symptom or one system more impacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, this uh, makes me want to just give a collective hug to everybody out there listening right now and say, you know, this is uh this is a challenge we're all facing, but you know, it's it's really, you know, something that a framework that we've understood through other conditions that you've been so passionate about. Um, and that really makes me feel hopeful that at least we'll find some ways to help people through this. I do know that most people that are are dealing with long COVID and presenting to to their clinicians or their healthcare providers are sort of being told like, Hey, you know, this is going to be a little rough for a while, but maybe in six months or so it'll start to lift. Is that, is that a fair response to be telling people? Uh, No, not really. I don't think so. (laughs) You know, I mean, again, we go into, there's a lot of different patients who are getting chronic symptoms. And I do understand, for example, that there are some patients who had a severe case of COVID and they were hospitalized and they ended up in the ICU and they had to be put on a ventilator and high dose steroids and a lot of other medications. And and in those cases, it, it would not be surprising that it takes time to recover from that situation, right? And mm-hmm. so under those conditions, you know, there may be patients that just need time to recover from all of those insults and, 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 and they may potentially stabilize in six months. So it's not impossible that that could happen. Right. But then you have these other patients with long COVID. And this is one of the the key things we're seeing in long COVID is it's not just developing in patients who had severe disease. A lot of patients who are getting long COVID were asymptomatic or had mild cases of COVID. Right. So Mm -hmm. in that instance, some else is going on, right? I mean, that's that's almost the opposite trend in which patients didn't really feel that bad right away and then slowly started to get sicker and sicker, right? Now, in those cases, I don't know, but the clinicians that I'm in contact with are not necessarily at all seeing that those patients improve if they're not helped, right? So that's a different scenario. And we would know very well from studying ME-CFS and also, you know, post-treatment or chronic Lyme disease that no, if you leave a patient with ongoing issues after an infection and you don't treat, they remain ill. I, that, that is to me, that's wishful thinking. It's not yeah. correct. I'm really glad that you, you mentioned that. Cause, and I do think that people who are, um, experiencing a shift in their health since COVID, you know, really need to link up with providers that will take them seriously and will have assertive steps. 
Now, not everybody will be able to afford, you know, the things that are necessary to get to the bottom of this. Um, So we have, you know, we have a big kind of public health dilemma with this. And um, however, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a lot to to think about with that um, and how to, how to serve people who, you know, can't dig into the viruses that are maybe undergoing or can't look at the gut and dysbiosis patterns or test if they have any vector-borne illnesses that have resurfaced. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge, but some people can um, ha- have those resources and, you know, potentially we'll be able to develop questionnaires and other more affordable ways to help start the process of treatment. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the things that I find most frustrating and hard to do to deal with with these cases is that, as you well know, in the you know mainstream medical appointment, you get 15 minutes if you're lucky with a doctor. And as well intentioned as they may be, they rarely even have time to ask what you're eating or what's going. You know, just other, just any kind of even lifestyle questions or anything to begin to sort of you know, even understand some of the factors that may be contributing to your case. And that's a huge problem. So as you know, it's actually patients who often have to, you know, pay out of pocket and see someone who can spend more time with them. And I'm so glad that some patients can do that. That makes me really happy. But I really worry about those that can't. And that's why we try so hard to do this research, because there are practitioners like you and other practitioners that can already and I'm not saying that we, we need a lot more clinical trials, a lot more research, but there are some things that you can already do to help these patients, right, right. Um, that you've been using. And, you know, we need to do the research to really keep showing that those factors matter, that those factors are happening in patients so that they can become integrated as the standard of care for all patients, you know, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't become just select knowledge, that it becomes, that's the goal. That's why I stay in research is to try to create a knowledge base for these topics that can be really drawn upon by hopefully the average physician, the, you know, uh, core institutions, but that, that is, it's a difficulty. And now with so many patients getting sick with long COVID, we're overburdening the system more than ever, which is really, really, really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, you know, the algorithms and the questionnaires and the screening tools and all those things that, are born from research um, are really a good bridge to cut down on the cost and provide clinicians with a way to get the ball rolling and, and, and advising patients on how to start feeling better. Um, And, you know, I think it's up to the clinicians also to, you know, provide free education and um, things that are safe for people to, to have access to um, and, and get the, get, this information out to people because uh, you know it's sort of we just all have to kind of throw ourselves into this for a little while definitely um, yes so do you think there's going to be like a biomarker test developed that's actually going to be clinically useful to say hey this is confirmed um PACS or long covid and i i say that because you know we saw this develop in 
IBS, um, there was like a, there's a subset of IBS called post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. And over the years, there's been a, an antibody, um, that test that's come out called antivinculin. And, uh, now we can, you know, successfully screen for people and say, Hey, yeah, you do have post-infectious IBS. This is what to expect. These are the treatment options, et cetera. Do you think something like that's in the works? Yeah, I think that there will probably be a mix of biomarkers. I don't think there's going to be one long COVID biomarker. And that really goes back to the fact that every patient may not have the exact same thing going on. So there's unlikely to be this one consistent solid biomarker that every patient has. Although the closest thing to that thus far would be the clotting, would be sort of the microclots or how Mm -hmm. hypercoagulable the blood is in these patients. If you can measure that, you can already show that there's something pretty abnormal going on there. Again, you can also kind of show that the platelets are hyperactivated. That is another good metric that can be, you know, reliably is probably going, is being found in a lot of long COVID patients and could be reliably measured and used to show that something's going on there. Um, You know, beyond that, then I do think there's also, you know, there will be autoantibodies in patients with long COVID and some of those may become, you know, obviously uh, testable autoantibodies that can be used as a signal that there's some disease going on. But like I said, you want to be aware of that trend in which autoantibodies are increasingly being shown to form in response to infection or pathogen proteins. Because when you find an autoantibody, which can be a good biomarker, then you come to this decision of how do I treat, right? Mm-hmm. And that is if you just consider it to just be just an antibody that targets self, you will go down an immunosuppression route, right? Right. If you think that there's a possibility that, for example, like in that MS study I described before, that what we're calling an autoantibody is actually an antibody that is hitting, for example, an Epstein-Barr protein and then cross-reacting with human protein or structure, mm-hmm. then if you can control the pathogen like Epstein-Barr virus, you will get rid of the autoantibody if you follow Mm -hmm. me, because there will no longer be that the antibody will no longer be made. So, you know, I was recently actually was talking to the lead author of that study with Epstein-Barr protein and the mimicry and autoantibody and MS. And now there is a shift in thinking there, for example, just from that finding, because Obviously, immunosuppression is the standard of care for MS to a large degree, but now they're going to come in and really try to go after the virus more, right? Mm-hmm. So you, and that, that's an interesting decision to have to make because if you suppress the immune system, it can aggravate the viral infection, right? Because mm-hmm. if you look at a drug like Humira or something that can suppress the immune system, the first side effect of the drug is increased risk of infection. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and it's the immunosuppression that can actually cause reactivation, you know? So, so I think it's going to be important to take something like an autoantibody and to not just to use it as a potential biomarker, but also to go further and dig into why it was created and track backwards from there to be able to understand the treatment that might follow from that. Right. So, 
But I do think there will be some autoantibodies that will probably be found consistently in long COVID patients. Um, definitely autoantibodies to the G protein coupled receptors. There are certain receptors that they've been found in ME-CFS patients. Now they're being found in some long COVID patients. So there might be some signal there. Um, obviously, you know, there will be indications of, of, of the viral reactivation or other, you know, anything you can measure there will be helpful. I wouldn't know if that counts as a biomarker, but obviously that would be measurable um, markers in patients that you could try to to assess. And then also there are some teams that are reporting, you know, immune signatures in patients with long COVID. Um, you know, there's there's actually one team that's kind of finding an antiviral, like an antiviral type immune response. I think they've yet to publish that may be a little suggestive of ongoing viral reservoir, actually, in some mm -hmm. patients. There mm -hmm. are some other teams that have just found, you know, in continued cytokine expression, um, sometimes reduced T cell signaling, I think a little bit. So there may be it may be able to pick up on stuff of that, some of that through immune uh, profiling again. Again, yeah. you want to start asking the question, well, why is that inflammation ha being picked up on in the blood? Because obviously, if there's something like leaky gut, it'll cause um, inflammation in the blood, right? So again, sure. you want to sort of begin to continue to ask why you're seeing inflammation. But I do think it's possible that from blood testing, you might be able to get some immune signatures that could be biomarkers, some autoantibody signatures that could be biomarkers, some clotting signatures that could be biomarkers, and also some signs of potential, you know, re pathogen reactivation that could be biomarkers. And at least that would be a set, sets of biomarkers to work off of. Right. And then for right. neuroimaging, yeah. you know, we have some preliminary data showing that microglial cells in the brains of patients seem to be more active. And so there may be some metrics that can also be picked up through imaging that can also sort of indicate that, that there's inflammation in the brain as well. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think this population of patients will be eventually advised to kind of continue to get boosters and go down that route of vaccination? Yeah, it's a tough one because, you know, we are, I'm in touch with a lot of patients and doctors that are treating these patients and it, it goes both ways. In fact, there's a team at Yale who's actually just been studying vaccine responses in patients with long COVID, which is great. And it's interesting because some patients report that their symptoms improve after the vaccine and other patients report that their symptoms get worse. So Again, that goes back to the fact that, you know, there may be some differences in what's driving chronic symptoms in different patients. One hypothesis is that in patients who respond well to the vaccine, that may be actually helping to clear up reservoir of the virus. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, if you still had some virus that hadn't you hadn't managed to fully clear and you got the vaccine that, you know, new influx of antibodies might help you clear that remaining virus, right? Mm -hmm. That's possible. It doesn't have to be, but it's possible. Um, also, there was, you know, there's been some reports, and I think one industry-sponsored study that showed that monoclonal antibodies might be able to help with some long COVID symptoms. And that would be a similar trend where maybe if you still harbored some virus, those antibodies could help clean it up too, right? Um, mm -hmm. But that being said, 
some patients had felt worse after the vaccine. And it's not, I'm not saying that there's a problem with the vaccine. I'm saying that there may be something wrong with the patient, right? right. In other right. words, that they respond differently to the vaccine because their immune system or other factors are not okay, you know? Right. So in those instances, I would hope that it would be a decision on a case-by-case basis. Exactly, I think that yeah. that at this point, you know, you need, obviously people need to, it's a, it's a tough one. You have to be juggling these different factors because the problem is you don't want to get COVID either. I mean, right. that's, that's a disaster. No one with long COVID wants to get infected again, but at the same time, you know, a vaccine is an immune challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. and if your immune system is dysregulated or struggling, it might be harder to, to, to manage that over time. So Mm -hmm. I hope that I personally hope that there can be sort of that patients can work with their doctors to be able to make the best decision for them at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. Well, that was just such a thoughtful response. Thank you for that. I mean, it, it just really considered so many different angles to this. And um, I think, you know, that that's the spirit of that I, I resonate with as far as looking at this, you know, sort of from an individual basis and and kind of looking at what's right for each person in each scenario and, uh, you know, kind of not, um, knocking it for when the tools are effective for other people. Yes, I agree. Um, that's, that's how we end our paper is that if you really take the biological factors that we describe in our paper and all the ways that they can connect, but they can connect somewhat differently depending on the case and, you know, what infection someone already had and the state of their microbiome when they were infected, which can differ from patient to patient, that the end game of this is personalized medicine. That if we really wanted, long COVID could be the impetus to really begin a very good personalized medical approach, right? It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the diagnosis that, that needs it it could show the benefit of personalized medicine. And so that's just a, a hope I have um, yeah. generally. Yeah. No, I think, it, I think it's happening. And I think patients are learning the right questions to ask. And people are learning at least how to have conversations and advocate for themselves more than ever. Um, and we do have all these tools out there, you know, to look at the gut and look at um, chronic viruses and, we, we have these tools, so they're available and making them accessible and, um, and everything you just said. Yeah. So with, with that, um, I'd love to just kind of close our discussion just a little bit with hearing about, you know, your, your current efforts and things that you'd like us to know about in your work and just some closing thoughts and, you know, how people can continue to keep in touch with you. Sure. Yeah. Well, we are definitely working very hard to do a number of collaborative studies on patients with long COVID, and they really, our research program follows the paper um, and the biological factors we described in the paper to a large extent. And we really are digging into the topic of viral reservoir, the potential persistence of the virus, because if you don't study that topic, if you don't just check if people still might have the virus in some tissue, then you may be missing a core part of a, of a large number of cases, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is, is a big part of our research program. And, and to do that, it's, it's, not, it's 
no small matter because what you have to do is you have to collect tissue samples from patients. And so what we've done is we've formed a network of clinical and surgical collaborators where when patients are getting a biopsy procedure done, where an extra piece of their tissue can be collected or are undergoing surgery for another reason, we send the surgeon or the doctor a collection tube where they can, if they're willing, give us a piece of the patient's tissue to analyze. Mm -hmm. And then we analyze it by some really cool uh, tools, um, pathology and sequencing tools to not just look for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, but also just a range of other immune and genetic abnormalities in that tissue. And that's almost at this point, we're calling it our tissue analysis pipeline. And that's one of the things we're working hardest on. And then after that, we are working directly with the team that's finding the microclots in long COVID blood. And we're even extending that study to MECFS to try to understand if there's the clotting is happening in those patients as well. Um, we're also doing a couple of neuroimaging studies one where we're trying to better understand the brain fog uh, signaling in patients with long COVID, because there's a region of the brain that's really important and involved in cognitive control. And that region, same region of the brain, cognitive control being sort of when you're in a room and you're, let's say you're in a crowded coffee shop and you're talking to your friend you know, the rest of the the buzz in the background of the coffee shop starts to fade out and you can concentrate on your friend, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in patients who lose cognitive control, that becomes more difficult. They start to hear all the other sounds, the sensations, and that, that's a mm -hmm. similar, you know, how patients who get long COVID, they have trouble where noise and sound starts to bother them and they're distracted and it's mm -hmm. hard to retain words. That's an area of the brain that really, really, that that cognitive control, that this is all by Mike Benoscar, by the way, that region is also very, very sensitive to inflammation. So mm. it's this overlapping region where if you have ongoing inflammation in the body for a number of regions, that reasons, that region can become um, problematic. And so we're doing a long COVID imaging study to just really characterize what's going on with that. That involves a challenge in the scanner where patients actually have to sort of um, do a cognitive task involving numbers that so we can actually sequence and, and image their brain while they're doing that to mm -hmm. be able to to better note how that circuitry is functioning. We're also doing another imaging study in a seven Tesla really high resolution scanner that looks at you know uh, cerebral spinal fluid flow and vagus nerve signaling in patients with long COVID that have structural issues, which is a separate topic but related into this. And and so and when we do the imaging studies. What we do is we'll collect blood and in some cases when we can cerebral spinal fluid from patients and other samples so that we can work off those samples to look at other immune markers or other issues. And then we can begin to correlate what we might find in patients' blood with what we also find is going on in their brains. In other words, we're trying to take patients and really work up the same patient so that we can begin to say, oh, we have data on what's happening in their brain. We also have data on what's happening in their blood. We also have a piece of their tissue, right? So that we can correlate the different biological abnormalities we may be finding and better understand how they're connected. So those are just some of the projects we're doing, but we have some really cool collaborators. We do have, especially with the tissue, we have teams who are using some of the top sequencing tools in the world right now. And what I mean by that is, you can get the genetic material out of a sample and you can just work through it to understand 
what the human genome is doing in that tissue sample, what's up with the immune cell activity, what's up with the pathogens. We can find it if the SARS-CoV-2 virus is there, but also the bacterial content, the fungal content, we can start to correlate a lot of factors. So we're lucky to work with teams that have some really cool, uh, some of the latest tools that are able to really take advantage of, of getting these samples. So Amazing. we're just, we're energized and we're moving forward with that approach. <laughs> wow. Things are really taking off since you headed back east, huh? Yeah. It's, just, it's that's really great to hear. Um, so, uh, and I know you're really active on Twitter and you post a lot of great material on Twitter. And what about like links to your lab or research studies? Where do people follow that? Yeah, we... I would say that following my Twitter is actually the best. I post on there. My Twitter is microbe-minded too. I actually post updates on there and sometimes um, we'll just link to um, findings or papers that are relevant. And I also, it's funny, I started my own podcast, <laughs> which I know is a little ridiculous, where I interview my own colleagues so that oh, people cool. can better understand what we're doing because... I end up having these incredible conversations with our collaborators who are some of the smartest people in the world working on these patients. And then I come away from the conversation thinking, wow, I'm glad I know that, you know, that, that was cool. And so what I decided to do is just start to record some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see on my Twitter and you can listen to some of those interviews, which I'm going to keep doing where you can actually just hear a lot of our collaborators or just scientists doing good work, um, talk about what's, what we're finding and what we're doing. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'll I'll put all those links in our show notes and sure. Um, it's just always so wonderful to speak with you. You're definitely one of our all time most popular guests, and you're one of my heroes in the in the space here. So I really appreciate that you make the time for me and for for our audience. Well, thank you, Adam. I'm just so glad that you're seeing and treating these patients and, and treating them with dignity and, and helping already identify things that may be able to be treated or to be helped. That, that really helps me feel better. Um, so I appreciate knowing that that's happening. Well, thank you. Yeah, we got a lot of community of people out here trying to help. And so, um, and, you know, any of the listeners need help with people in their area that might be able to help them. I'm always willing to try to link you up with like-minded clinicians. So, uh, so yeah, okay. well, thank you. And, um, I'll just continue to follow your work and, um, you know, I welcome you on anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Adam. All right. Let's touch base again then soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. For the the episode to them and i'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them so once again we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the one thing podcast and again much appreciation for you being here with me